Black Warriors Tunse Sego Anibuju, Kwei Nindaluizi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, practices, laws, and governing structures. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island and one place where colonial governments have put continuous pressure on Native peoples to give up their lands and sovereignty is in Mi'kma'ki. If we look back at some of the flashpoints in recent history, you see federal and provincial governments and enforcement agencies of all kinds consistently trying to dispossess Mi'kmaq peoples of our rights. Think about the violent SQ raids in Listigush in 1981, trying to stop Mi'kmaq people from managing their own fishery. They were back in Listigush in 1998 when Mi'kmaq peoples were trying to defend our right to manage and benefit from timber on our own lands. Then in Eskinobadige in 1999 onwards, non-native fishermen were engaged in prolonged acts of violence against Mi'kmaq peoples, while DFO, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, watched. And eventually, both DFO and the RCMP engaged in violent arrests of our people as well. In 2013, that was the year that hundreds of RCMP officers stormed Mi'kma'ki to arrest our people at El Sibuktuk, who were peacefully occupying our lands to protect it from hydrofracking. In 2016, again, grassroots Mi'kmaq people from Sebaganegadi, led by Cheryl Maloney, took actions to stop Alton Gas from poisoning the rivers. And now, 2020, 21 years after the Marshall decision confirming our treaty rights to hunt, fish, and gather for trade, earn a livelihood, you have still ongoing violent interactions by non-native fishermen while DFO and the RCMP stand by and watch. The situation got so bad, the Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq chiefs had to declare a state of emergency. Here to talk with us about what's been happening on the ground and his own personal experiences is Brandon Maloney. Brandon has a great deal of experience and insight as he comes from a long line of Mi'kmaq leaders and activists, and he's also worked in fisheries. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Hi, thank you. Well, thank you for taking the time to share your experience and all of your knowledge with our listeners because um, they stay tuned here to get important information that you might not have time to hear in the media. So perhaps we can start out by you introducing yourself, where you're from and your background and that kind of thing. Well, uh, my name's Brandon Maloney. I'm 34 years old and I'm from Sebaganegadi First Nation. Um, I grew up in here. Um, been a warrior since pretty much as long as I could walk and been a fisherman since I was 13 years old. Um, a fisherman and a warrior, growing up as a fisherman and a warrior, uh, I've seen a lot. I come from a long line of um, activists um, and uh, my grandfather was the late Chief Reg Maloney who uh, fought for our rights for many years and my mother uh, Cheryl Maloney who also followed in his footsteps to fight for our rights. So it's kind of passed down in my family, um, pretty much hereditary. But I started out as a fisherman when I was 13 years old, and I worked my way up to a captain's, and I worked my way 
into the director of fisheries position for the band. So I feel that I, I see another kind of the ground, the grassroots type of approach with it. I've been there. I've been, uh, I've seen the struggles. So as I got older and in a director position, I learned to help uh, use those experiences to help really suit us and move us forward in our rights. Also married for 10 years with uh, two beautiful children that are seven and 10. Aw, well, I, I don't think there's any Mi'kmaq person or, or anyone who doesn't know of your grandfather. He was just such a strong leader and so many people looked up to him and he mentored so many people. And of course, your mother, I know your mother very well. I mean, she will single-handedly go out <laughs> and start a protest if that's what's required to defend our rights. So, I mean your your whole family your whole community really has that warrior spirit but out of love and peace and protection for your people and I, and I love um, how you've you know you've come right from being a fisherman as a child and a warrior and from all of the you know hereditary activism and leadership working your way up to a captain and then to be the director of fisheries I mean you literally have seen it from all sides you know, both in your youth, in your adulthood, in a actual fishing capacity, in a policy capacity, a governance capacity. And I think, you know, that that's important information um, that an, an important insight that people can benefit from. Now, one of the things I've noticed about your First Nation is that it's always stood out on its own when it's had to. They, I mean, you're your grandfather and other leaders at um, Sabaganagany have always stood up for what they believe in, even if it meant that they were the only First Nation doing so. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the history of your First Nation and how strong it is. Yeah, I find, uh, <clears throat> I find now it's just, it's been going on for so long, like just decades and decades and generations that it's, um, it's something that we grew up with here. So like, I'm only 34 years old, but when I work with a lot of youth and they're, you know, 20, 30, younger, I find that it's a part of life out here. Like every, I, I did an interview not too long ago and I said, there's not a big difference between a fisherman and a warrior here. <laughs> they kind of go hand in hand. <laughs> so you, you grow up with that and that pride. It, it's really just pride is what it is. And the people here, they, they grow up with it. The kids, they see it their whole lives. It's been here so long. Like I, I, I couldn't remember a time when it wasn't. Uh, my grandfather's been passed for you know, about uh, seven, eight years, but he was also chief for close to 25 years. And, um, and it wasn't just him. It, it's a whole community thing here. And it's just, it's bred it into the children. I find now that, uh, we're proud and we always stick up for our rights. We, um, it's just a way of life out here. I, I know it's a little different from some other communities um, in the region, but uh, we wear that with pride and it, it, it's embedded in the, in the culture here. Well, and that's the kind of thing you don't learn in books. You don't learn in school. That's like a lived traditional kind of education and the, all of the values built in about sticking up for your people and your rights. I mean, that's, and it's, I mean, it's just so obvious how it's just been carried down from generation to generation. And, you know, a lot of people really look up to 
um, the folks at your First Nation for being so strong. And, you know, that kind of leads me to, you know, your comment about, you know, fishermen and warriors end up being the same thing. And unfortunately, it almost has to be that way because of everything that happens when we just try to exercise basic rights. But, you know, before we get into some of the things that have happened, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the importance of fishery in general to Mi'kmaq peoples, like traditionally and currently, that this isn't just some, you know, hobby or this isn't like a sports fishery or sports hunting, that this is actually really important to Mi'kmaq people. It's definitely really important here, the whole livelihood um, perspective. One thing we, we struggle with is poverty here. Um, I grew up with it. I grew up in poverty. I, I've seen it. And it was almost uh, as viewed as a way, a stepping stone further. Um, a lot of people ask me, you know, well, what's what's a livelihood to you? And I, I say raising the poverty line. <laughs> that that's my main goal. Like we we're we're a lot of people are poor, they don't have it, but we're Nova Scotia, it's a fishing community. We're surrounded by waters. Um there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to make a, a decent living off the resources around us. And I think that's what made us really strong with our approach this time around was it was really a and I seen it over the years being on the back of a boat, being on that side of things that it, it needs to be a, a ground up approach. And that's what we took. We, we took a grassroots and up type of uh, approach to it. And I found once we start developing stuff through the community, through consultation with the community and made it the community's plan, it was a lot easier to bridge that gap between the management of the council, chief and council administration and the people itself. And uh, it really moved us forward a lot here. So if you're ever hearing you talk about livelihood with the people and the council who manage it, it's almost like a partnership. Um, it's really uh, unique and it makes it really strong. I think that's the difference with our plan. And a lot of it is it, it's really strong because it comes from the people and uh, the council just uh, tries to manage it. Well, that's one of the things that we were trying to bring out in the media about what was happening, that, you know, all of this violent response or, you know, government inaction, this wasn't a result of just one random person going out and saying, oh, I'm going to do a livelihood fishery, that it came from your community from a governance perspective after, you know, talking about these issues and developing a plan and making it based on, you know, both a traditional Mi'kmaq sciences and conservation sciences, and that this was like well thought out and this is actually coming from the people. So they weren't able to do what they usually do and try to divide the fishers from the chief and council and say, oh, look, they're a rogue fisherman and they have they don't have the approval of chief and council or they don't have the approval of their people. In fact, this was the community doing this. And to me, that seems like a profound place of strength to come from, which really further supports what it is that you're doing at your level. Yeah. I think that way it made the, the big difference here that really strengthened it. it. It really strengthened the plan a lot. Um, the chief couldn't go against the people. <laughs> he probably wouldn't be the chief no more. <laughs> so, <laughs> It's all, it all, it makes uh, the um, the leaders, you know, it holds them accountable to the people. So the people hold that plan and the people 
broke that plan. So it, it took three years of consultation just for that specific plan. And, um, yeah, we, we had leaders that fought for certain ones and, and pushed and pushed and pushed for many years. But that, that plan itself took us three years um, in the community to develop. And it's still being developed more and more. But the basis of it was uh, it was over a three-year period of host-to-host visits, community consultation, uh, consultation with fishermen. It, it was a lot, a lot of science and a lot of work. But now that we implemented our plan, it, it's showing all the, the strengths in it are from that work. So it's really showing that it's a good plan and it was really thought out and time was put into it. And and there is that little extra of what really strengthens it. And I think that's it. I think it coming from the people um, and the people's needs help really strengthen that plan to hold up to how it is today. Exactly. And I think it really acts as a shield against, you know, all of the typical divide and conquer techniques that government tries to use or the, oh, you didn't even consult with your own people and then try to cause internal problems that that you already did all the work. They literally had none of their old divide and conquer techniques to be able to use effectively. And one of the things I thought, you know, is the way that you went about it. And making sure that this comes from the people, not only is that traditionally how we were uh, as part of our Mi'kmaq uh, nation within our different districts, but it also seems to me that this would be a good example of how to assert and defend our rights in other First Nations across the country so that you do have this really strong shield of the people before government gets to go in and divide and conquer. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's already shown within Nova Scotia and Atlantic provinces. Uh, I worked with a lot of other um, communities when they were just trying to really figure out what livelihood might look like. And we shared a lot of information. And, and I hope that it sticks and people take them methods and continue to use them and, and it just spreads. We've been seeing it here on the strength of our plan and it's recognized by other bands. And you're right, that whole divide and conquer technique and all the other techniques that the government used to shut us down in the past, we uh, we brainstormed um, days on end with meetings about how to make this different, how to make this work, make a difference this time. And uh, it, it falled into place well. So Exactly. I mean, that's just, it's so powerful. Um, because, you, you know, you've got two aspects here, how government wasn't able to divide and conquer, you're coming from a place of strength. But let's talk about some of the concerns, because despite the fact that, you know, you were acting on Mi'kmaq rights, despite the fact that it was a plan, despite the fact that, you know, this was um, coming from the people, you still had to face, like, incredible acts of violence and intimidation by non-native fishermen, not just a day or two of protests, but really extended violence and intimidation over months. I mean, for those people who haven't been following that or might be listening from other countries, can you just share some of what was going on by those non-native fishermen? Yeah, yeah, it could be a while. (laughs) No, that's okay. (laughs) It, it it has been. We're almost under three months here. If uh, 
of the abuse, but we didn't um, expect, we expect a little resistance from the commercial industry, but we didn't expect them to go to this lengths for it and to snowball and, and to have really the DFO completely disappear and not really uphold any law in the water and to have RCMP stand by and uh, observe was just, it was heart-wrenching. I think the RCMP made a lot of people feel uh, helpless in the situation. But some of the violence that came towards our people was just unimaginable. Um, we had people barricaded in in pounds with angry mobs outside trying to burn the place down with the minute. Um, had to get RCMP to go escort them out so the people could burn the place down the next day. <laughs> it, it, it's very, we had, uh, I, I seen people knock smudge bowls out of elders' hands, you know. Um, there's been a, a lot of people right in our faces and and just the violence was unreal. I didn't expect them to go to them extents to try to stop us from uh, fishing, but it, it really showed and thank God for social media to get those views out because they wouldn't have made it out without that. And it, it's just, there's so much, like we have, there's probably thousands of threats to women. And, and I find they really try to go at the women um, and elders a lot. They, they shy away from the men a bit, but we all take the abuse and it, it's really, there's just so much <laughs> like, there, there's so so much they cut traps hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of uh fishing gear they have caught they've cut and tore and stole under the watchful eye of uh the rcmp they have smashed our vehicles i i had uh a bunch of them on tie on screw half of my truck so my truck my sway bar links my control arms all my lug nuts oh my <laughs> and, god yeah. and it's a three-hour drive home from where we're fishing so that's <laughs> it, life and death stuff that's not just name calling that that's a risk to your life yeah and and that's the difference that we seen here there was a small group i don't know if it's even small group but there was a group that really took it to the extent they they know that we're we're really capable men we're very uh we're usually very aggressive um but they really tried to agonize us to react to get that in the media and at the beginning we took the approach that we are not going to react um and for us and our warriors here and our fishermen, it was the hardest thing for them. <laughs> they yeah. could go fight. They, they go fight and go home, you know, after yeah. it, and that's it. Everyone's fine. But to sit there and take the disrespect and, and, and the threats and, and, and to watch. And I think that's why a lot more women were involved is, is the guys held their composure and the women always went to the front lines. And a lot of them even shared that we're in front of our men to protect you guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, we're fearless. Don't get me wrong. But uh, it brought out all the different warriors, um, young and old, male and female. But um, the type of stuff that we went through is just unbearable. Um, we'll see a lot of the aftermaths of it for a long time in our community. Because a lot of it wasn't just fishermen. There was families down there supporting fishermen you know there's it's a family thing their families would move down for two three months and fish with their with their fathers or their mothers and it was a really big community 
um, involvement in it. So when the the protest and the standoffs and all the racist stuff come in, there's potentially, you know, children and other people there. So we see the effects. We're going to see the effects for a long time. But uh, we held strong with our approach. And uh, I'm pleased with it in the end. Oh, my goodness. Of course. I mean, you were literally making Mi'kmaq people and First Nation people proud all across Turtle Island, both, you know, in what's now known as Canada and the United States, for how you all collectively handled it. It showed a real you know, strategy, a real value-based way of, you know, organizing. And and to make matters worse, knowing that it wasn't a level playing field. So they could hit you, but you couldn't hit them. They could threaten you, but you couldn't threaten them. And they knew that. And they knew that. And so it's not even like you're on a level playing field where you can respond and defend yourself. I mean, when we saw videos of those fishermen attacking Chief Sack, you yeah. know, with with RCMP officers standing there, and it took a while for the RCMP to even intervene. Like we were thinking, you know, here Chief Sack has to take that because if he was to defend himself, if any of us defended ourselves, that would have been the media story. That would have been the picture, and they would have vilified us as violent and rogues and radicals and dangerous people. And that's the unfair part about this. I, I watched uh, I watched a guy light up a van in front of about ten RCMP officers. <laughs> I said, "Wow, well, light up our van in front of about ten officers." They uh, they burnt a couple big boats. Um, they burnt a pound. They blew themselves up trying to blow up a pound, and uh, are injured in the hospital still. And still no charges to them. That's been two months ago. Um, really. Yeah, the extent of the violence really went uh, really went far this year. They shot flares at our boats, um, which is really dangerous. <laughs> like a lot of these things, what I noticed is the the RCMP took the stance on we want to preserve life, preserve life, mm. go preserve life by stopping someone from burning the boats down. <laughs> like yeah, that's exactly. I don't know what uh, whose life you try to preserve here. <laughs> no kidding. Well, and that's the question, right? Isn't it? Whose life are you trying to preserve? Or is this more about preserving your buddy, your best friend, you know, the your non-native fishermen and their economies and never mind what happens to Mi'kmaq people? Because we could see it. And, and, you know, admittedly, thank goodness for social media, like you said, but social media doesn't show everything. It shows tiny clips. You know, we see the this burnt boat. We see cut lobster traps. We see the burnt pound. We see the angry mobs. We see the assaults. We hear the threats. But, you know, those are small divots. We don't see what happens every single day. And, you know, like on social media, I, I was astounded by the numbers of non-native fishermen admitting that they engaged in these acts like as if they don't believe any of these things are criminal or dangerous or inherently racist and even making threats to bury Mi'kmaq people to dig graves for them to you know uh, basically inciting other people to commit violence against Mi'kmaq people and I thought like in any other context if that was us doing that you know, I mean, I don't have to tell you, we would have been arrested by now. 
Yeah, I I um I tried to I knew I was under a microscope, so I tried to make sure that um I didn't get no charges. <laughs> so I, I, I went through this whole process really trying to make sure I, I stayed clean and being just a, more of a voice. Um and I end up getting charged. <laughs> Well, that's, that's incredible. And it makes me wonder if in fact, what they're doing is they're going to try to look for Mi'kmaq people to just randomly charge to make it look like to the, these racist, terrorist, non-native fishermen, like it's two sides of a problem, that there was problems on both sides. So we'll charge some over here and we'll charge some over here and make it look like this was just a dispute versus one-sided violence. And that's exactly what they're doing because I'm very observant of everything that comes out with them. And they are literally going charge for charge. So one one guy was uh, charged with assaulting a woman, older fella. The next day they charged uh, a young woman for assaulting him. Uh, it goes back and forth, back and forth. Um, dangerous driving out there, operating vessels, back and forth. The second our people step forward and, and try to press any charges or do that, they they get it in return and i think the videos are obvious we're we're outnumbered eight to one you know sometimes ten to one and we really took the stance is not engaging um like i said from the beginning we took a total different approach this time around um we wanted to really do everything proper and right and and so we're still on track with that but it's, uh, it brought out the true colors in the government, that's for sure. Well, and the thing that concerns me is we could have almost predicted that they would do that because they literally had to be hounded by Canadians to actually do something, step in and protect Mi'kmaq people because someone's, I mean, someone could have died. When you're talking about, you know, burning buildings and, you know, fire explosions and ramming boats or or you know, all of the threats or messing with your vehicle, these are things that can cost people's lives, though they're forced into action. But when they, when they do charge for charge um, and try to make it look like, oh, both sides were problematic, what they're doing is normalizing this racist violence against Mi'kmaq people by making it look like it was just a dispute. Kind of like when they appoint a mediator, as if like, in what country would you bring a group of terrorists together with the victims and say, let's mediate this dispute? Terrorism isn't a dispute. It's literally one-sided violence. And it just it's incredible to me, uh, but I'm not surprised but saddened to hear that you're now going to be caught up in one of those charge-for-charge charge scenarios. Yeah, I... I... I know they always look at me as a certain, like from that other side, look at me as a certain leader, but not the top leader. So I, I think it's all strategic and just stepping mm-hmm. on their point. Um, I think there's a lot more to it. Um, like the charge itself is not a big charge to me. It, it's not a criminal code offense or a motor vehicle. It's under like federal regulations for operating vessels and stuff. But it, there's a fine line that... I had a reason to be there. Yeah. <laughs> so the guy, the guys you're accusing me of cutting off, what are they doing there? That's so, incredible. Yeah, it really is. It, it really is. Um, and if that's all they got to charge us with, then I think we're doing all right. 
Well, I mean, I, I hope that you have support because I know like all across the country, you had countless yeah. First Nations, First Nation organizations, scientists, biologists, you know, like us, we have the Eastern Door Mi'kmaq lawyers. We all wrote letters in support, human rights organizations, politicians, you name it. People were saying, stop this one-sided violence, protect Mi'kmaq people, protect their rights. And nobody was giving the government a free ride in terms of buying this idea that, oh, it's a two-sided dispute. Um, and, you know, it, and given that, you know, this incredible pressure by other people for the government to act really forced them into a situation they weren't prepared for. I mean, the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans actually admitted she had not read the Marshall case. I mean, how can you be the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans and say, oh yeah, I really haven't gotten to that case yet. It's like the most fundamental case in all of the Maritimes. Yeah. I do believe it's only 10 pages too. Yeah. <laughs> I, know. I mean, oh my goodness, maybe someone should have given her cheat notes or something. I seen, I seen that interview. I was, I was shocked. I really was. Well, and it just goes to show they never had any intention of recognizing our rights and that the only way to enjoy our rights is to actually do what you and your community have done. Talk to the people, make a solid plan and go out and assert your rights with or without government permission. Yeah, I think we really took the approach a while ago. Of we, we stopped asking the government for permission for anything. Now we just kind of put them on notice. <laughs> Here's your note, what we're doing next. So, um, One of the things I wanted to ask you about, because this is the stuff that you don't really see so much in social media, um, but my concern over the long-lasting impacts um, after all of this is said and done, because we know in, situ in El Sabukduk, Eskinobridge, and all of those places, the issue didn't just stop there. You know, there was many, many years of, you know, negative reactions from all levels of government, negative reactions from neighbors, uh, you know, local businesses. And so I I'm just wondering if you can talk to us about, you know, any concerns you might have about how this might impact Mi'kmaq people um, just on a lasting basis? Like we heard that some businesses were not even selling fishing gear to Mi'kmaq people anymore because they were being intimidated by these very scary non-native fishermen. Yeah, with, with that type of situations, it, it goes back to our history. Um, on a positive note, and it's not really positive, but we're used to it. It's been going on for as long as we can remember, as um, long as I can remember anyways. And it just flared up a little bit, this last event. But it, it was happening even before we, um, we dropped our gear on the 17th. We have people, FSC fishing, and they were getting cut off of fuel. The fuel companies were saying, no, we can't give them to you no more. So we start addressing those with lawyers now instead of letters from the band or whatever else and stating certain things like you can't do that. So we were always battling that situation down there. And then when it flared up this last time, it was just unbelievable the amount of businesses that closed their doors to uh 
to our band members. And uh, I said it put us back 10 years. We worked on them relationships with the non-native fishermen and businesses for for a long time. Like I always, uh, as a commercial fisherman and as um, the director of fisheries, I always really tried to work with everyone and have an open mind. So I really bridged a lot of them gaps and rebuilded a lot of them relations in my um, time in office. I was director of fisheries for six years. So I, I felt that I was bringing us really back really well. And all the work I'd done was just swooped right out the window. <laughs> and we were back into the nineties type of thing and the way we were being treated. But um, it, the sad reality is it, we're used to it. That's just a, real sad reality where we're, there's certain places we don't stop for gas we'll make it to the next town um and it's been embedded in our people forever so we fish our, our fishing grounds are three hours away so a lot some people live down there they get trailers they got different houses and stuff like that and it's just known certain places we're not welcome and i found this whole last bit of uh ruckusness really really put us back put us back past a time that i don't even remember so like would be back probably when the marshall decision first came out it was like this and then it slowly started to go away and we created them relationships but i seen relationships with people that we worked with for the last 10 years just get up and leave and not talk to us no more and and get put in that position and take that side against us it was really sad. I, 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 we lost more friends than anything, but uh, it just shows her true colors, really. It, and it is sad because in this situation, you did everything right. You made a plan. It came from the people. It's based on law. It's based on Mi'kmaq law. It's based on, you know, Mi'kmaq science and conservation science. And, and, and you know, you made an announcement. It wasn't like a secret. You did everything right. You didn't respond to the violence. You didn't respond to the racism. Yet, here we are where, you know, on social media, see families not even being served at a restaurant. And it's and that's just, that's pure racism. There's no other explanation for that because you didn't, you didn't do anything that would merit that kind of response. And you know, one of the things that really concerned me about the long-lasting impacts was when we saw all of the videos and the photos of, you know, hundreds of these violent non-native Mi'kmaq fishers, you know, going to fish buyers' houses. So not even Mi'kmaq people's houses, but non-native people's houses who are fish buyers or sellers to try and intimidate them to never work with Mi'kmaq people. I mean, that... How how frightening to know that, you, you know, you could literally be accosted and intimidated by all of these violent people and you can't even do business with Mi'kmaq people without fear of some kind of violent reaction. I mean, on social media, they're even threatening to burn down their businesses. Yeah, yeah. And it was it's a really scary uh, reality down there for anyone. I, I seen them turn on a lot of people and it's just... Uh, it's a sad reality and the extent that that mob, I call them a mob, mm -hmm. um, will go to is just unreal. Mm -hmm. um, if they get zeroed in on you or your home, that, that's a scary thing. Like I couldn't imagine having a hundred, 200 people outside my driveway. I wouldn't know how to react. Um, 
but they do it and they've done it to their own people that that you're right that's how far the hate goes into it and that's how and they're very powerful too they have a lot of money they have a lot of money and a lot of resources so it's uh it's a scary thing for a lot of people and it's just a sad reality of it well, and th- and that's the stuff that I think Canadians don't really understand. They don't understand that this isn't a one-time event or a lack of education that fishermen just don't know that Mi'kmaq people have treaty rights. I mean, they've known that for a long time. This has been going on for decades and decades and decades and decades. All of these problems with racism, violence, exclusion from all of these natural resource industries. This isn't new. And... I guess one of the positives, because you're, you know, you've been really good at trying to point out positives here, is how everyone at your First Nation um, acted, how everybody was supporting one another, how everybody was trying to help educate the public, how everybody was, um, you know, not reacting to the taunts, you know, not falling for the agitation and just keeping the bigger picture in mind. And like, wow, that just made me so proud to be a Mi'kmaq person. You know, I'm from Ugbaganjig at Eel River Bar, First Nation. And of course, we have lots of problems in New Brunswick too. But just to see how a community can come together in unity um, and 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 to be so strategic and so strong to me is a real positive and ultimately you were able to bring the feds to the table after 21 years of not negotiating in good faith yeah i'm still uh i'm still shocked at it all myself <laughs> cuz uh, generally our, our reserve is very aggressive and they're just really warriors they've been it's been embedded in them their whole lives like i i was in burnt church um when i was 13 years old you know standing on the front lines so it, it goes so deep and it i'm still shocked at how uh, our community rela- reacted and i'm still proud i like I'm, I'm definitely proud of everyone well beyond but I, i'm still shocked that we kept it together to us the hardest thing for us is what we had to do <laughs> so the hardest thing for us was to stand there and watch them disrespect our women, our elders, our ourselves with any any means necessary. Like it, it was on they were they were banging on gas drums, um, pretending to sing when, when our people would say a prayer, you know. There was a line and cops between the line and, and our, our our elders and, and our people would sing it and they would, you know, do songs for strength and other stuff. And these, these guys would mock us on the other side, banging on gas drums and telling us, you know, casting spells. And, and a lot of them, their ages range. So I seen a big young generation that just learned it from their, their, their families. And it's like, wow, like you guys don't even know what you're here for. <laughs> you know, let me ask you yeah. what of why you're even here, but you don't know why you're here, but you're here just to hate us. There was nothing else to put that pressure and try to destroy everything that we were out trying to do. So it was, uh, it, it was remarkable for our band and our people to keep that, uh, strength together. Um, I, I'm still trying to deal with it myself uh, to see, you know, I, I take time and I, I, I take a lot of time to think about a lot of things, 
but uh, definitely every time I get thinking about that, it, it just blows me away with uh, the strength of our people with that stance we took. Um, just because we're so not used to that stance, <laughs> it, it's very hard for our people. We, we, mm-hmm. we really like to uh, stand up proud, very, very proud um, Illinois here. So to see them stand by, and that's, what I, that's how I explain it, was the hardest thing for us to do that we done. And it paid off. We got the attention. We got the attention of the world. We got the attention of the government. We have them sitting down now trying to figure out certain things. And, um, yeah, definitely still very proud of our people and how we handled everything. And all of it's un- And all of it is unfair. You should have been able to defend yourself. You should have been able to, per- you know, protect each other. Um, and that just goes to show the nature of racism and hatred. It causes physical injuries, emotional injuries, spiritual injuries, that they would even attack your spirituality it just goes to the root of the hate. And um, so uh, thank you for everything that you've done. Um, before we let you go, I'm wondering, is there anything that our listeners can do to help support you personally with regards to the charges being laid or to help your community in any way? Is there, is there something that we can do? Uh, the, the additional, just the educational support is what I tell people. If you could educate one of your friends or one of your your associates on stuff that they don't know, then that's one extra person. You know what I mean? Education is, is really key. Besides that, we have, a, uh, it's almost like a GoFundMe page through the band, Sebag Nagy Band. Um, there's donation thing on our website that goes directly to the livelihood fishermen. And uh, that's kind of our fund me page for here. Cause uh, what happened was we had all our gear stolen and ripped and cut in front of us by million dollar vessels um, four or five times over. So like a lot of it was, and it's really hard to tell the guys who go through everything that go out there to get their livelihood, they get their gear set, they put everything into it and then it's ripped away in one day <laughs> and we'll come and we'll support them. We'll say, here, you can't stop fishing. I know you're frustrated. I know you're sad, but you got to keep fishing and you got to keep your head cool. So every time we give them the additional support, they really appreciated it. It was, uh, and it, it made a difference. If it without it, we wouldn't be able to keep pushing our men and our fishermen and, and supporting them to go out every day. And our fisher women, we don't just have men. We, we mm-hmm. definitely have a lot of fisher women, uh, that run their own boats they they do a lot like they're very uh strong women down here that's for sure and um so yeah that that's the best way to support us at least it's um organized by the band and that goes out directly to the livelihood fishermen themselves um personally myself with my um my charges the band is 100 percent supporting me um i was the director of fisheries at the time but since then i got uh, elected to council so I'm, i had to give up my fisheries job and move into a council position, but it was a long time plan. So. Oh, good. Okay. Well, that's what we wanted to hear. Cause we never know, you know, with land defenders, water protectors, and, you know, human rights defenders all across Turtle Island, sometimes they have access to supports, you know, organizations or their bands or whomever, and sometimes they don't, and we have to rally to make sure that they're supported. So, 
Um, we will share this message of education. Obviously, this podcast is going to be a huge education for people and we'll share it widely. I'll post links to the band's um, donation page so that we can continue to support the livelihood fishermen because that's something a lot of people don't realize that the first thing they attack is your ability to earn a livelihood. So by destroying the traps, even if you've got another First Nation that ships in traps, then they cut them again or they destroy them again or they destroy your boats. And so, you know, they've tried to, to really impact. And, and so I'll make sure to post that link and uh, all the other links that there have been out there just for informational purposes, we'll share them. So thank you so much for taking all of this time to share your knowledge and insights with us. Um, it's really important. It's key to education. And I know this, this can't be easy for you and your family and your community. No, but uh, thank you for uh, everything. We'll, uh, we'll keep going as we're going. We're still, uh, I find we're still on schedule and we're still fighting. So. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's the way of the Mi'kmaq people. Um, and, and thank you to all the podcast listeners for tuning into the Warrior Life podcast. I hope you'll share Brendan's words amongst your family, friends, communities, educational institutes, politicians, you name it. It's important now more than ever that we continue to support and rally behind Mi'kmaq people. So after listening to this episode, listen to it again, share it, and find a way to put these teachings into action. Until next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliag. <laughs>